Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. It is an exciting day as we are journeying in our year of the Bible this year. We have finally reached the New Testament. Isn't that amazing? Yeah! No more like old angry God of the old—no, I'm just kidding. Hopefully, though, you've seen uh, not any of that in the Old Testament as we've covered that. People had this, especially people apart from faith or who are antagonistic toward faith, are like, yeah, God, just this angry guy in the sky throwing lightning bolts. We've been in the Old Testament for seven months. I haven't seen a lot of that. So that's great. So we're seeing that that's, you know, just not really accurate. We are in the New Testament, and I am so excited about how we're going to journey the rest of the year as we get into the second half of uh, the Bible in this year of the Bible. And we're going to start with a series the next couple months, August and September, in a series that we're calling Dear Church. So the New Testament is 27 books, is how many individual books are in the Old Testament, or the New Testament. I'm going to have to get used to saying New Testament, New Testament, right? 27 books. Uh, 22 or 21 of those are letters, almost 22 of them. Revelation's kind of a letter, sort of, kind of, but 21 are letters. Uh, 13 of the letters in the New Testament are written by a man named Paul, who we'll talk about today. And nine of those 13 letters are to churches. Many, if not all of them, he actually planted and started, and as he's journeying through the region, going from place to place, town to town, city to city, he will write back and correspond with these churches. And from Paul's letters that we'll cover the next eight weeks uh, or so, um, we get really the instruction and the blueprint for what the church is. So they will, especially when in Corinthians that we'll get to in a couple weeks, it seems they wrote him first with a bunch of questions. The church in Corinth, which we'll get to, again, I don't want to get too off track here for the sake of time, right? Uh, but they would write him with a lot of questions because Christianity is a brand new thing. It is just getting started. They don't know who they are yet. They don't know what it's supposed to look like yet. They don't really know everything they're supposed to believe or how they're supposed to conduct everything. And so they've got questions. So these churches would write to Paul, and he would send them back these letters, basically with a lot of practical information about what it means to be a Christian personally, what it means to follow Jesus. And then in some ways, he will talk about what it looks like to be the church and as a collective in the community, as you gather together together. for times of worship. So that's what these letters are all about. So we're going to cover that the next several weeks here. But we're um, also not going to start with a letter. We're going to start in the book of Acts today. Now what you'll notice is I've skipped the first four books of the New Testament right away, okay? So like any, anything, we're going to save the best for last. So although the gospels about Jesus come first chronologically and in order of the New Testament, we're going to save them for the very end of the year. We're going to end with Jesus at the end of the year looking at his life through the gospels. So we're going to start today in the book of Acts. Now, Acts is part two of a two-part series that Luke wrote. So he wrote the book of Luke, obviously, and that's about Jesus basically starting, initiating this new movement that then in the book of Acts becomes the church. And he's writing this sort of, and from an outside perspective, 
Um, as you'll notice, when you read Luke and you read Acts, it's written to a man named Theophilus, who is not a Jew, who is probably not even a believer necessarily, but he's interested, he's curious about this upstart religion, or sometimes we'd even call it a cult, called Christianity. It's brand new, it doesn't really look like anything else, it's kind of like Judaism, but not really, and it's got the same Jewish guy, Jesus, in there, but it's different, and so he's trying to figure out what's this about. And so Luke does some investigating, and as you'll read, as we'll read today, he traveled with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. So you'll read first-person accounts in Acts. That's Luke writing because he was there when these events happened. He witnessed it, he saw it, he experienced it for himself. So we're going to be in the book of Acts today, uh, and what we're going to look at is really a key theme of the gospel. Now the gospel is just the good news about Jesus. But the key thing that we're going to look at today in the book of Acts is that the gospel is for everyone. It's for everyone. That's the theme of where we're going to be today. We're going to look, so there's a lot, Acts is amazing. It's a lot of fun to read, a lot of amazing stories about some amazing people. Really, the first half is about Peter, the apostle Peter. The second half is mainly about Paul and his ministry associates. But right in the, near the middle, we're going to look at Acts chapter 16 today and look at three stories about three people who could not have been more different. And yet what we're going to see is the gospel was for each of them. The gospel reach, reached each of them in a very specific, unique way to them. And we'll see that the gospel is for everyone. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Acts chapter 16 is where we're, we're going to stay in Acts 16 today. So not a lot of flipping around uh, like we have been lately. Acts 16. Let's start at verse 13. and We'll, look, we'll meet the first person uh, who the gospel was for. Acts 16, verse 13. Luke writes, On the Sabbath... We went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. So first, in a very sort of nondescript two-verse section, we meet Lydia who becomes a very important person for Paul's ministry and for the Christian faith in the first century. So here's a few things that we know from Lydia from these two verses. We know that she's a wealthy businesswoman. So she's a merchant. She doesn't just have like a little nice little corner stand where she sells her knickknacks. It says she's a merchant who sold an expensive purple cloth. So now you may know that the, the way to dye things purple in ancient times was used by a specific type of snail. And you would have to get the excretion from the snail that then would turn a deep purple. And the reason it's so expensive is because it would take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of snails for just a small amount of dye. So only royalty can afford that sort of dye for their fabrics. And so it says here, uh, Lydia dealt in purple fabric. So she is dealing with high-end people. She is rubbing shoulders with wealthy people. She is selling expensive items to rich people. So she's probably going to be a pretty cultured person. She's going to be a very savvy businesswoman. She's going to be very intellectual. She's going to be very rational. And that's how the gospel came to her. So we see she's a wealthy businesswoman who does business with wealthy people. But we also see here that she is a seeker. So other translations will sometimes call her um, a, a, what is it? I wrote it down. Oh, a God-fearer. Uh, so what that would mean is she is a non-Jew, she's a Gentile, who is curious about Judaism, 
but has really nowhere to go. There's nothing for her. She kind of hears about her Jewish neighbors and, and may have met some Jewish people in her life and her travels, and she's like, man, they really are sincere. I really like a lot of their religion. She's, and she says here she's at a prayer meeting, and they're, so they're reading some type of scripture, and they're uh, praying, and, but she has nowhere to go. There are some ways the Old Testament may allow her to convert to Judaism, but that's going to be a very difficult road for her for a lot of different reasons uh, that we won't get into here this morning. But there's no, she, she's an outcast. She likes this idea. She's not some pagan Roman person who's worshiping Zeus and worshiping, you know, all these Roman gods on Mount Olympus. She's not into that. She's not really, she's into, she knows there's something more here. She knows there's got to be something more. So she's a God-fearer with nowhere to go. And so Paul, and then as we'll read later, he's with Silas and Luke, who's writing this. They, are, they end up uh, in this town where they don't know anyone. There's no, obviously no Christian church yet. This is why Lydia is so important. And they go down to a riverbank, and they see a few women who are having a prayer meeting. And they all seem to be, it would appear, God-fears. There could be some, some Jewish women who wouldn't have been allowed in the certain part of the temple uh, where the men would go. But nonetheless, they're there praying together. And Paul sees an opportunity, sees an opening, and takes it. He goes and says, hey, can I join your prayer meeting? And they said, sure. And he said, hey, by the way, and he just shared, we don't even know what he said. We just know that what he said, she, op her, she opened her heart to it, and she accepted the gospel. So what we can see here is that Lydia is more than likely, if not absolutely, the first Christian convert in the city of Philippi. She's the first ever person, possibly, to hear the gospel in this entire metropolitan city, and she accepts the gospel and really uh, starts a church in her home. We read at the very end of this, Acts chapter 16, after the other things that we're going to talk about, Paul and Silas and Luke, they end up back in Lydia's home with other believers. So she is the first church in this entire city, the first Christian convert in this city. So that's what we know about Lydia, but what does that show us about the gospel? When we look at how the gospel reached her, what, what do we know? Well, we know clearly, this might seem obvious to you, but it needs to be said, everyone needs the gospel. That's what we see here. Again, wealthy people need the gospel. People sometimes try to substitute money for God, but money is a terrible God. It's, not, it, it's a harsh taskmaster, some have said. It, it's, it brings, like you would say, well, no, money can buy you happiness. Maybe for a while, maybe in one area of your life, but it's limited in every way. It brings limited happiness because it's never enough. You, you look, and you don't have to look any further than rich celebrities on TV. Why do they act out the way that they do? Why do they behave the way? They're rich. They should be completely happy, yet they are miserable because money is a terrible God. Now, not to say that every celebrity worships money, but most celebrities in our modern culture don't worship God, so they are worshiping themselves, money, fame, power, whatever, and it doesn't bring what we think it will. So it's a terrible God. Money begins to own you instead of you owning your money. So wealthy people are in need of the gospel. They need something more than what their wealth can bring them. We see from Lydia, successful people, for similar reasons, need the gospel. Success is fleeting. You may be like an expert in your craft, and yet it's limited to that one thing. 
You may have been successful in certain business ventures, and yet you failed in others. And guess what? We, we care so much more about the failures than the successes most of the time. We obsess over the failures more than the success. And so that's fleeting just like wealth can be. So successful people need the gospel in order to not really feel empty. Another thing that we know about Lydia is that good people need the gospel. She's, a, it seems, a moral person. She's a God-fearer. She's curious and searching but hasn't found what she's looking for yet. Good people need the gospel. And what we know is that morality is good, but it only goes so far. Apart from us getting into a relationship with the moral law giver, morality only goes so far. And you can even, I put this in here, I've been reading a lot of philosophy lately, so you'll have to bear with me for a second while I apply what I've been reading to what we're going to talk about just for a minute here. If you look at two European philosophers, one from the 18th and one from the 19th century, you may have heard of, uh, David Hume, the, the Scottish philosopher in the mid-1700s, he equated morality with self-perception. Basically, he, so here's where, if you go down the line 300 years ago, now here's what that looks like. That may work for you, but this works for me. You can trace that line of reasoning back to David Hume in the mid-1700s. That's what he, morality is self-perception. If I think this is good for me, and I think it's the right thing to do for me, then I'll do it. But if you think that this other thing that's totally the opposite is good, which doesn't equate, right? If you think that that other thing works better, then you do that. So morality is just self-perception when it's apart from the one who gave the moral law. Frederick Nietzsche, who came a little over 100 years later, he said, basically, he is very averse to religion, Christianity. If you read anything, you know he hates Christians pretty severely. Now, he did go insane at the end of his life, so that may tell you something uh, there, you know. Uh, but he basically said morality is simply religion's way of trying to control people. It's this pyramid scheme that they built that if you act good, this being in the sky will be pleased with you, and then one day you can float up to be with him forever. It's a ruse. It's a trick. It's a trap. So he saw morality in that way because he saw it apart from the moral law giver. So he was really averse to morality in any way because then you almost have to accept that there is a God, and he would never do that. So what we see is when we try to separate morality from the moral law giver, we feel lost. We feel directionless. We feel empty. We feel hopeless. I'm a good person, but I don't know what to do with all the goodness. Like, I know what's right and wrong, but I don't really know why and what, what happens if I don't do, who's going to stop me to do whatever I want. So that's what happens is there's confusion and hopelessness when we pull morality from the moral lawgiver. Being good is not good enough. Another way you could phrase that uh, that's been said before is how good is good enough? If there is no ultimate law giver who sets the rules, sets the parameters, uh, that runs the show, well then who says what is right or wrong anyway? Morality is nothing without the moral law giver. And Lydia knew all of these things to be true. She knew that wealthy people needed the gospel. She knew successful people needed the gospel. She knew being good wasn't good enough because she's searching for something. She's seeking for something. Money hasn't bought her complete and total happiness. Success hasn't given her complete and total satisfaction. Being good to her wasn't quite good enough. She knew there was something more, but wasn't sure exactly what it was, and there was nowhere for her to go and experience that. So we see that she knew uh, that because she was seeking. 
And that's an important thing for us to apply. She was seeking. I, I think most people are more open to the gospel, are more open to faith than we may give them credit for. Some people are very hostile toward faith. I think those are very few. It's the loud minority, right? The silent majority of people, even if they're totally lost and apart from Christ, are searching for something more. They, like Lydia, they don't know quite what it is that they're missing. They don't quite know how, where to go to find what they're looking for, but they're looking for something. Most people are more open than we may assume. They're searching for identity, meaning, purpose, and truth. Now, add to that the fact that if you're a follower of Jesus, God has placed you exactly where you are for a purpose. And that purpose is to help those people who are searching to find what they're looking for, which is what you've already found, which is the gospel. People are looking and searching, and they're looking for what you've already found. They're searching for the buried treasure that you have unearthed. They're looking for the, ans the, the answers that you already know. Right? They're looking for what you have. And so if God gives you an opportunity to reach these people around you that are searching, be like Paul and take it. Enter that conversation with them. Like, be there for difficult moments in their life. Like, make that person at work all tells you everything about their life. That's a great opportunity because they will, they will love to talk about them, right? And they will let you, you know, give your two cents. and They'll listen to you. Take those opportunities when they come to try to give those people some direction with the gospel with the gospel. That's what Paul does here. He saw a group, he joined it, and Lydia was saved. Now, you may not bat a thousand. We have one instance of Paul here, like maybe Luke's writing the highlights a little bit here in Acts 16. Yeah, the first person that we ever talked to in this city, totally of lost people, became a convert. Isn't Paul amazing? Yes, but he didn't bat a thousand. He met people, as you read the book of Acts, that were antagonistic toward faith, that rejected him, as, even as we'll talk about today, treated him harshly when he tried to reach them with the gospel. And, and yet, here's the good news. You won't bat a thousand when you take this approach, but the results are up to God anyway. All he's looking for is someone who's willing to go out there, to talk to someone, to share with someone, to be there for someone, to be that shoulder to cry on, the person that gives that advice. Man, you give great advice. What's your secret? Jesus is the secret, right? Let me tell you about him. The gospel is the secret. Let me tell you about it. We can use any sort of avenue that's there, that's open, for, to, for people to be reached with the gospel. One more thing on Lydia, then we'll move on. One thing to notice is the approach that Paul took. Now, again, we just have two verses, so I don't want to reach too far, but he just used a simple, rational conversation that a wealthy, intellectual person was appealed to, right? That they were attracted to his message. So here's another, let me give you this encouragement. Don't discount the intellectual, rational approach to the gospel. Let me say it this way. The gospel is simple, but it's not simplistic. There's a difference. Faith is simple, but it's not simplistic. Christianity is not for the weak. It's not for the stupid. It's not for the losers who don't have anything else better to do. We'll be in Romans next week, but if you, when you read a book like Romans, which is one of, the, one of the greatest pieces of writing in the history of the Western culture, it just is, okay? When you look at that, the logic and flow of reasoning and the argumentation that Paul lines out, it is multi-layered, it is complex, it is deep. It's like people stay away from a few books, like Revelation's one of them, and Romans is another one. 
right? Because there's so much there, we get overwhelmed with all these themes and ideas and terms and his logic, it's just too much. Like, so what you're saying is Christianity is simple but not simplistic. That's what I'm saying. Don't give in to the lie from the outer culture, well, you're just too stupid to believe anything scientific, so you believe in this God thing. Wrong. Read the Bible, and you, you cannot believe that. If you read even just the book of Romans, you can't believe that. So we shouldn't neglect growing in our faith even in deeper things, even in deeper themes. Don't be scared to maybe branch out and read something deeper on a scripture. Like Don't, don't be afraid of uh, maybe this thing that you see that is scary because it's too much. Just go for it. Like, you're not going to learn everything. I'm not going to know everything. We're always going to have questions. There are always going to be holes in our logic and understanding. That's okay. But don't be put off by that. Instead, just go headlong into whatever God has. Okay? Because that, that's what worked for Lydia. She saw it was simple, but not, she's like, ooh, there's, there's some stuff here. Like, Paul, this guy's got, he, there's a lot here. Like, there's some intellect here that I can jive with. And so it reached her because the gospel is for everyone. That's what we're seeing. Let's move on down, verse 16. We'll look at this. We'll be introduced to the second person who is totally unlike Lydia in every way. Uh, verse 16, just a couple verses down. Acts 16, verse 16. Luke continues, One day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and instantly it left her. So we just had Lydia, who is definitely in her right mind, definitely has her stuff together, is a successful, wealthy, well-traveled, well-spoken businesswoman Two verses later, we have a preteen girl who is out of her mind. Yet the gospel was for her, because the gospel is for everyone. So again, let's look at what we know about the girl, and then we'll look at how to apply it. We know she's young, says so she's a young slave girl. Most scholars would say she's maybe 11, 12, 13, 14 at the most. She's a young girl. We know she's a slave. It's in the description about her. So this means one of two things. Either she has no family and has been bought off the streets, or her family sold her into slavery. Those are the only two options that I can think of that make sense with how this young preteen girl got into the place where she is. Either she has no one, or who she had thought she was nothing and gave her up. She's used. She's property. She's a money-making machine for people that own her. And then the third thing that we see here is she is possessed by an evil spirit. Now, when you read verse 16 in the Greek, if you just happen to do that, what it says here, there is no English translation that translates this word for word because it wouldn't make sense to us. But to the original reader of Luke, they would know exactly what he's talking about. So in verse 16, when it says she had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future, what it says in the Greek is she possessed the spirit of the python. Now, what, what is that? Well, what it goes back to is ancient Greek mythology. So you go back four or five hundred years before Luke wrote this, he's pulling the idea of what this girl looked like and what she did into Greek mythology. So there's the, I won't get into all of it, but there's the Oracle of Delphi that Apollo, who's the son of Zeus and the half-brother of Hercules, conquers this sort of serpent-like um, creature. And then at this place, there were these people who would 
be able to see and predict the future. They would have a spirit of the python at the oracle at Delphi to be able to predict the future. And they would go into these sort of weird trances, and they would have these ecstatic utterances, and they would have sometimes deep voices or multiple voices. So think, when you think of this girl, think exorcist. That's a pretty accurate representation. Like maybe her head actually spun. I don't know. It doesn't say. But that's what Luke is getting to. This girl is completely, not only is she owned by other humans, but her soul is now owned by Satan, by an evil spirit. She is in the craziest predicament you could ever imagine. This girl is tortured mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally in every way. What this girl reveals, though, is the spiritual and supernatural element of the gospel. One thing that might seem confusing here, when you're, well, okay, she's possessed by a spirit, but look at what she's saying. These men are servants of the Most High God. They're telling you the way to be saved. Well, yeah, the, how, why, the devil wouldn't say that. Why would the devil possess a girl to point to these people? Hey, listen to them. They're going to tell you how to be saved. Why would he? He doesn't do that, does he? In fact, he does it all the time. It's the oldest trick in the book for Satan. Genesis 3 in the garden, he wraps just enough truth in a big fat lie to deceive Adam and Eve and ruin all of mankind's existence forever. That's exactly what he does. He can't just tell a crazy, you know, lie that no one's going to believe. It's got to be believable. It's got to have a nugget of truth somewhere wrapped in there that gets us off track or leads us astray or is totally untrue the way that it's being twisted. So that's exactly what the Spirit is causing this girl to do. Now, the reason she's not believable is because she's crazy. She's out of her mind. She's delusional. She is like, she, I mean, I, I can't even paint a crazy enough picture for what this girl will look like. Probably multiple voices, multiple personalities. Like, she is out of it completely. She is totally dominated by this spirit. So she's shrieking. Now, what she's saying is true. It's accurate, right? But the way it's being said totally discredits her from anyone believing anything she says. The other part of this, though, is that what she says has to be true or else she doesn't make these guys any money. If her, if her gift is to predict the future, she better be predicting the future or she's of no value to her handlers anymore. So she's saying true things. She's, predict, she's making these guys a lot of money. But again, she's shrieking. She's yelling. She's acting in erratic ways. And it says day after day. So she is literally stalking them, following them everywhere they go in Philippi, over and over, day after day, hour after hour. Imagine a young girl just shrieking and hollering and saying all these things all the time, okay? And then it says they're on their way to another prayer meeting, maybe by the river, maybe at Lydia's house, and she will not stop. So again, now imagine this girl's following you uh, into prayer group on Sunday at 9 a.m. <laughs> Sorry, girl, this is not going to work, okay? Uh, you're going to have to wait outside. And that's what Paul does. It says he got so exasperated with her. Now, again, this doesn't make Paul look like a really nice guy at the moment. You know, she can't help it. You know, she, she can't control this. And yet he got so irritated, exasperated, upset with her that he just turned to her. It says, and he spoke to the spirit within her and commanded it in Jesus' name to come out of her. And immediately the spirit came out of the girl. So now, Let's, let's apply this here for a minute. There are people that you know, that I know, I'm not saying everyone you know is demon-possessed. That's not where we're going with it. Even though you might think they are, okay, they're not. Even though their head might spin. It doesn't mean there's a demon in there, okay? But there are people that you know that have deep issues somewhat like what this girl had. There are people that you know that have heavy addictions. 
It's the same type of spirit on them that this girl had. It manifests differently, but it's the same root cause. There are people that you know that have deep psychological trauma. They've experienced things they can't control. It wasn't their fault, but it's totally messed with everything up here. You know people like that. People that have such deep emotional baggage, they can't live a normal life. They can't function like everybody else can because of something else that's put weight upon them mentally, emotionally. They, they just can't handle it. And what this girl shows us in Acts 16 is that the gospel is for them too. Just like the gospel is for, I got it all together, Lydia. The gospel is for this, I got nothing going for me, slave girl. The gospel is powerful enough to reach both of these types of people. People that you know that may, maybe you do know someone who is actually, may have some evil spirits working in their life. I don't know how common that is, but you may actually know someone that has something going on. And you're like, there's something deeper, there's something spiritual, there's something going on there. It's possible. It happens. You might know someone in that case. The gospel is powerful enough to reach even them. You know people that are so demonically deceived by what's gone on around them or what they've seen or experienced or what they have encountered that they are just totally, completely walking blind in the dark. The gospel is for them. The gospel is powerful enough to reach them, to free them, to deliver them, to save them. The same gospel can reach both. I know that this example may seem extreme, it may seem weird, but there are people who are supernaturally lost, but the supernatural power of the gospel is able to reach them. So Paul casts out this demon, and that seems great, right? Amazing, that's awesome, good for the girl, good for Paul. Bad for Paul, actually, is what we see here. Because now her owners, her handlers, have no value. She has no spirit in her, so she can no longer predict the future. She can no longer know things she should not know. She's worthless to them. She's nothing to them. So they cast her aside. Now she's probably worse off than she was in some ways before, even though spiritually, mentally, emotionally, she's free now. And now a riot, a literal riot breaks out in downtown Philippi. Because now these handlers are out for blood. We're going to get him because he cost, you know how much money you just cost us? That's my career down the toilet because you wanted to do your little trick with the demon thing, right? So they are not happy. They cause a ruckus. A riot breaks out. And so Paul and Silas are then arrested for, causing, for inciting a riot or whatever, okay? So they're arrested. And this is where we meet the third person in Acts 16. The third person they meet is a Philippian jailer. He's the guy that holds the key to the cell they are in. So it says when they are arrested, they are thrown over to the jailer, they're, they're beaten, so they're beaten, they're bruised, they're broken, they're bloody, and then they are thrown into prison. And it says that the jailer didn't just throw them into any cell, not just the holding cell, because they'll, you know, make bond and get out in the morning. He throws them into the deepest, darkest cell in the middle of this prison. Not only does he do that after they're beaten and bloodied and broken and bruised into the cell, they are locked hand and foot in stocks. More than likely, it can be assumed it would have been not just like handcuffs and ankle cuffs. It would have been more likely in this time in the ancient culture, they would have been spread as far apart as they could and then held that way, maybe up against the wall, maybe even on the ground, to be stretched as far as their body can go to reach its limit. Now, this seems excessive, doesn't it? These are not violent career criminals. 
They are not a menace to society. They actually perform societal good, and a riot broke out because of that result, and now they're being treated like the most violent career criminals. But that's where they meet this third person, the jailer. Let's go down to Acts chapter 16, one of the more famous stories probably in Acts that we'll look at here for a minute. Acts 16, start at verse 25. We'll read this sort of entire uh, section here. So they're locked up, and it says this, Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, all the doors, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. We'll come back to that in a minute. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. So what do we know about this situation, about the jailer? Well, we know that he worked in a very difficult environment. We know that he, on a regular basis, deals with the worst of the worst kind of situation. He's around, typically, the worst of the worst types of people in society. He sees the worst of the worst. A lot of scholars would also say it's likely he's ex-military. So typically, uh, if in the Roman army, when you retire or when you can't function anymore, as a way of payment from the government, you get a job. They give you a salary. They give you this job. And so it's likely, and not only for the last however many months or years, he's seen the worst of the worst, but before that, he saw even worse than the worst of the worst. It's, a, it's unbelievable how many men this man may have killed. It's amazing what kind of battle scenes this man has seen. It's, a, it's incredible to assume the kind of hard life for years this man has lived. And it fleshes out to him being a fairly harsh man from what we can tell. He treats Paul and Silas harshly. He throws them in the deepest, darkest dungeon and binds them hand and foot. Again, excessive punishment that doesn't seem to fit the crime. He's throwing the book at him, and then another book, and then another book, Okay. So, but what we, here's what we know about this guy. He was impacted by the same gospel that impacted the slave girl and Lydia. But it was in a different way. Three different people, three unique stories, the same gospel reaches all of them in a unique way. So how was this jailer impacted by the gospel? It's this, it's this term you may have heard before, but here's how I want to kind of describe it. He was impacted by what we're going to call lifestyle evangelism. It was actions doing the talking. Again, with Lydia, it was sensible, intellectual, logical words. To the slave girl, it was powerful, name-of-Jesus words. To this man, he's watching these men in the prison. He's watching what happens when everything falls apart and all the doors come open. He watches what they do. Uh, the 13th century Italian monk, you've heard this phrase, this quote before, St. Francis of Assisi, he said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. 
exactly what Paul and Silas do here. How do they do that? There's two ways that we'll look at for just a few minutes that they did this. First, they showed joy in the midst of suffering. Again, they're falsely arrested. They didn't really commit a crime. They ruined somebody's business, so they should maybe join the government, I, I guess. I don't know, right? They, they were falsely accused, falsely arrested. They were beaten, broken, bleeding, and chained. And as you read Acts and the letters of Paul, this is a theme in Paul's life, a running theme. Falsely accused, excessively treated, harshly treated, beaten nearly to death. He finds himself in this place a lot. So what do they do, though? What, again, what do Paul and Silas do? They're chained to the wall at midnight. What are they doing? Yeah, they're having a worship night. Like, who's going to do that? Who's going to decide, yeah, I'm chained, and I'm beaten, and I probably have a lot of broken ribs, and I may have a concussion. Praise Jesus. Let's, what's that song again? Let's turn to page 255 in your prison hymnal. Like, you know, like they have church at midnight in the deepest, darkest dungeon in the prison. And it says the other prisoners heard them. I think it's not much of a stretch to assume the jailer heard them. He knows what they've been through. He knows what's happened. He knows their situation. Then he hears them. It's kind of like the Grinch with the who's in Whoville. He, I don't know if they're singing. I don't know if they're singing that. Probably not, right? Jesus, Jesus. Maybe they made words to it. I don't know. But nonetheless, they're praising God. They're singing. They praise through the pain. They had joy in the midst of suffering. So here's what they don't do. They're not complaining about their situation they didn't ask the guard for their for his supervisor which they could have when you read the end of this story it turns out paul maybe silas but paul definitely is a roman citizen which means he has certain rights and privileges that other non-roman citizens do not have he most likely is carrying an official document proving his citizenship on him so when, he, when the first official puts the first hand on him, all he's got to do is pull this out and prove he's a Roman citizen. I get a trial. You can't do this. You're breaking the law. But he didn't do that. Strange thing, but he didn't do that. He could have, but he didn't. He didn't blame God. He didn't curse the slave owners, the, the slave girl's owner. He didn't curse the jailer for being harsh with them. They worshiped. They praised. They prayed. They praised through the pain. And again, the prisoners and no doubt the jailer heard them, and how strange that must have seemed. And maybe you've not suffered like Paul and Silas like that, but you've suffered in some way. There's been some pain you've experienced that is excruciating. There's been some loss that you've encountered that is too much to take. There's been a diagnosis that threw your entire world for a loop. There's been a tragedy you didn't see coming that crushed your life. You've experienced suffering. So I wonder if we can find joy in the midst of suffering like Paul and Silas did. I wonder if we can praise through the pain like they did. And if we can, it's good for us to learn how to do that. Because what good is moping about the situation we can't control? What good is excessive worry and stress over things that we can't do anything about? But I can focus on the problem or the problem solver. That's what Paul and Silas realize. And then this kind of attitude is, as we'll see, good for others. It's inspiring. It's infectious. When you can praise through the pain, when you can find joy in the midst of suffering, when people are inspired by you, but you're the one worse off, probably means you're doing it right. Okay? 
when, when people come to you even though they're better off, that probably means you're doing something right. So we want to we wanna have this same joy in the midst of suffering. It's because people see the gospel through your life, this lifestyle evangelism that we're talking about. It's the joy of the Lord that's your strength. As Paul writes later on, it's joy unspeakable and full of glory. As Paul writes later on again, it's his strength is made perfect in our weakness. When we can have joy in the midst of suffering, it has that effect on people. The second thing that uh, Paul and Silas did is they showed kindness in the midst of cruelty. Kindness in the midst of cruelty. Again, the jailer treated them unnecessarily cruel. Then the earthquake, remember the earthquake, frees how many of the prisoners? All of them. Not just Paul and Silas who are praising. Again, I always heard this story, and I had to reread this several times. I always heard the story where because they were praising, the earthquake happened. Luke does not make that connection necessarily. They happen to be praising God, and then there just happened to be an earthquake. It may have been related, but we don't know that from the text. But we do know there was an earthquake that freed all the prisoners. All the doors open, all the shackles undone, and the jailer's going to kill himself. Now, why would he do that? Because he knows his bosses are probably going to kill him when they discover that all these prisoners are back on the street. Now, it's not his, he didn't cause the earthquake. It's not his fault. It wasn't a failure on his part, but yet he's going to get blamed for it. So as a man of honor, he's going to end his life on his terms and his way. Yet what does Paul do? Paul sees him about to end his life, and he says, nope, stop, don't. So again, Paul doesn't just let the jailer kill himself, even though he's treated them harshly. He doesn't watch the jailer kill himself, even though he's treated them harshly. He doesn't return cruelty for cruelty. Here's what's amazing. He, Paul and Silas, they don't even allow any one of the prisoners to leave the prison. He says, don't kill yourself. We are all here. It's amazing what they did. We're all here. And the jailer's response to that then is, what must I do to be saved? That's a weird response, isn't it? What? It's because of this lifestyle evangelism. He saw joy through suffering. He saw kindness in the midst of cruelty. And on a, the deepest level possible for him, it changed him. It spoke to him. It opened him up to something brand new. Normal people do not behave this way. Regular people would never do this. There's something that he saw in their actions that changed him. Paul's kindness in the midst of cruelty affected him. He went above and beyond to save the jailer's life. And then it says he bound their wounds. He took them to, their, to his house. He fed them a meal. And then his entire family was saved and baptized. That's a pretty good night, right? That's a pretty good night for Paul. So lifestyle evangelism works. It's an indirect approach that has a direct result. It's a soft approach that can melt the hardest of heart. Because the gospel is for everyone. For the indifferent person who doesn't really care about religion at all, for the hard-hearted person that's just been there, done that, didn't work for me, I'm out, it's for them. It melts their heart. Let me tell this quick story, and then we'll close. Uh, in 2006, you may remember this, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a gunman entered an Amish schoolhouse and opened fire. Killed five young girls, all under 12, 12 and under, and injured six more, and he took his own life. So by that evening, some of the people from that Amish community happened to know his parents, the gunman's parents, where they lived. So before the end of that day, some of the, the leadership and people who were affected by his actions went to his parents' house 
and they cried with him, with them, and they grieved with them, and they said, we've lost children, and you lost a children, a child. So they said, we're here for you. Hours before, their son had brutally, for no reason, murdered five of their children, injured six others. And yet they go that night to say, hey, we're in this together. A few days later, when the funeral of this man happens, he actually had a wife and I think three daughters. About half of the crowd in attendance at this man's funeral were people from the Amish community in that town. And they made sure to tell this mother and these children who are without a husband and a father and who now their life is never going to be the same, they wrap their arms around them and say, hey, we're here with you. We're here for you. We're in this together. The the story, not, not just the shooting caused national headlines, yes, but the response of the community caused secondary national headlines. And the question being asked over and over and over again was, how could you forgive in this way? How could you act in this way? How could you show grace and mercy to the man and his family? Like, how could you just not say we're done with, like, why? And their response was just simple. Forgiveness, central to our faith. It's who we are. Joy in the midst of suffering. Kindness in the face of cruelty. That's that's not just Bible talk. That's lived out. It is the way of Jesus. It's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Ouch, right? Pray for those who despitefully use you, those that curse you. When you're insulted, he says, turn the other cheek. That's why Paul, in multiple occasions, writes, don't repay evil with evil, because it's joy and suffering and kindness and cruelty. This approach works. It works. So again, the gospel's for everybody, right? It's for those that have their life together but still need something else. The gospel's for them. It's for those that are totally erratic and nothing's working. The gospel's for them. It's for people who are somewhere maybe in the middle. They're opposed and they they have their reasons and they're just hard and they're shut off. The gospel is for them because the power of the gospel is that it's for everyone. Let's pray. God, my prayer today is that you would help us to see the people around us. That you would open our eyes to see the people around us and their need for the gospel. Their need for something more. Their need for you. Help us to be open then, as Paul was, to doing what we can to reach them in whatever way you lead us to do that. For some, it will be a very civilized, simple, intellectual, deep conversation, maybe over weeks and months, until the power of the gospel through that reaches them. Maybe it's going to be someone that we just need to pray and pray that you would, they would have a power encounter with you. They are so lost. They are so deceived. They are so demonically oppressed at times that all we can do is just be there for them encourage them and pray for them, but the power of the gospel will reach them. Maybe it's someone that we work with or someone in our family or someone that we know who is just kind of indifferent. I'm doing my thing. I'm living my life, and I don't care about the Bible. I don't care about religion, but guess what? This lifestyle evangelism approach can work for them too. Not just our words that we beat them down, annoy them with Jesus. Jesus. Now, that's fine, but I pray that we would also live it out as well. As St. Francis said, that we would preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. Our lives should be a living letter of your goodness and your grace, that you've saved me and you'll save them, that you've rescued me and you'll rescue 
them, that you've changed me and you can and will change them. Help our words and our actions through the power of the gospel to reach those that need you, because it's for everyone. So I pray that you would empower us, embolden us to go out into this world this week and make a difference through the power of the gospel to reach those that need you. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.